episode 20 of the Echo Corpus Christi podcast, the podcast featuring Corpus Christi's creators, makers, doers, and builders. On this episode, we visit with Richard Lomax, the proprietor of the Water Street Market, which includes the Oyster Bar, the Executive Surf Club, the Sushi Room, the Texas Surf Museum, and now Elizabeth's at the Art Museum. The Water Street Market is downtown's gathering place, a city block including a coffee shop at Lucy's, casual food, sushi, oysters, and fine seafood, along with both the Ben Magazine and Visit Corpus Christi. Richard and I were introduced by our mutual friend Todd, thank you Todd, and we sat down for a conversation before Elizabeth officially opened. Richard is the second generation of Lomaxes to run Water Street, and he walks us through his family's Corpus story, including the growth of Water Street into the hub of downtown that it has become. We also talk about Water Streets and downtown's future. Let's visit with Richard. Well, Richard Lomax, thank you for coming on the Etcher Corpus Christi podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me. I'm flattered. It is my pleasure. Um, I'm thrilled to get this opportunity to visit with um, a stalwart of the downtown area and Corpus Christi for that matter. So why don't you go ahead and tell us what your Corpus story is? Um, so obviously born and raised here, you know, uh, my dad, Brad Lomax started this business and, uh, and I was born, uh, he started in 1983, I was born in 1989. Okay. Uh, my, I have one older brother and a younger sister. So we were raised in the restaurants, raised on the coast um, and uh, always loved it here. You know, mm-hmm. I never, uh, knew anything but Corpus and, and grew up surfing, fishing, and uh, eating walnut dressing. So, uh, <laughs> Which so really the, has its own kind of yeah, the, that is, yeah, that is, that is the, you don't touch the walnut dressing. I was be- beaten into me. Um, so grew up here, had a great time, went to Ray High School, um, still have a bunch of friends from here, uh, and went off to college, mm-hmm. uh, went off to TCU. Um, Bless your heart. Yeah. <laughs> Beat the hell out of Baylor a bunch of times and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and was going to go in the oil and gas business. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had worked most of uh, my high school years in every uh, job in the restaurants. I worked at Agua Java as a barista. Mm-hmm. Um, horrible at that. Uh, horrible busboy, too. Uh, busboy at sur- uh, Surf Club and okay. then oyster shucking at Water Street. Mm-hmm. That's why I really liked oyster shucking. I was good at that. Um, so worked in the restaurants, never really thought that I had a place in them. Uh, we never really talked about it. Uh, you know, my dad was busy and, mm-hmm. and, and all, a great visionary. And I thought, you know, I'm gonna go strike out on my own and uh, get in the oil and gas business like every other Texan. So went to TCU, uh, studied geology, okay. um, and uh, met my wife there, my future wife there, Lindsay, and uh, went off and got my first job uh, in Houston. Um, got mm-hmm. an oil and gas job. And it was uh, just a whole different world for me. You know, it's just like sure, a huge, sure. you know, you, you, you hear like, you know, I'm so used to restaurants and mm-hmm. lots of employees and, and, um, and that retail environment and uh, had no real context of what the office world was like. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very competitive uh, and, and uh, you know, going up an elevator in a, you know, in a button up and, right. and you're going up there and you're looking at all these fluorescent lights and, you're like, uh-huh. and it was kind of a similar story to my dad because he, he had a similar, in Houston too, a similar mm-hmm. thing. He just didn't dig it. And I think I, I spent a good year there. I learned a lot, met some great people, but I kind of saw the window closing on me. Like, I don't know if I can differentiate myself in this business. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of smart people in there. A lot of, a lot of people that are doing it well. And, you know, um, 
I started thinking about um, what can I do well? What can I what can I can make an impact? Right. What can I can only do? Mm-hmm. And that and at that time, I think my dad was finally maybe he'll never run out of gas, but maybe he was ten percent <laughs> <Right>. low. <laughs> and he called me and he was like, you know, we just talked about that and if I was mm-hmm. happy uh, in, in that career path and. He kind of recruited me back and said, "Well, I really, you know, want someone to take it over." Mm-hmm. My brother didn't have any interest at that point, um, uh, so I just jumped in with two feet. And mm-hmm. That was 2014, okay. end of 2014. Um, so came down here and um, so glad to be back. Recruited my wife from right. Alma Heights down here. <laughs> that was the biggest challenge, and now sure. she's stuck and she you loves bet. it. So, Good. so. Uh, like all probably all good Corpus Christi stories, a lot of them are circling back, mm-hmm. and, and I hope there's more of that going For on. For sure. You know? Are you finding that a lot of your high school friends are coming back or have stayed, stayed around here? I've got a good group, honestly. Mm-hmm. We were able to keep a lot. You know, of course, we get the brain drain, and there's sure. a, a couple, there's a few in Dallas, a few in Houston, um, Austin, but um, I was able to keep a good core, which is you know great, and all mm-hmm. of them uh, from you know everyone, my brother's age, and all our friends in high school. Um, talk about moving back even if sure. they're in Dallas and they've got great careers and great families they're like oh, man, <laughs> I can't believe y'all get to go surfing on right. weekdays and you know, I'll, t- I'll send a picture out of me you know fishing on a Absolutely. weekday and it just drives them nuts and in fact one of our friends in Fort Worth will make that drive to go surfing mm-hmm. uh, often S- seven hour drive down 35 to surfing right. it might cure me of surfing so um, anyway uh, yeah we're able to keep a lot mm-hmm. and I, I'm all of them are interested in moving back. I think if Corpus could offer the you know salary range mm-hmm. uh, and just the kind of business opportunity, even kind of close to some of the business opportunity of some of these other cities, it'd be a n- no-brainer. People sure. would be down on the coast. So, well, maybe some of the learning through COVID as we do so much remote work in the office world, anyway. Um, maybe that'll open up some opportunities, and even in their own businesses already to live wherever they want to. Yeah. Corpus could be a good landing point. I, for a lot I of think Port Aransas definitely saw that. I think yeah. everyone just went to the beach and said yes. we're going to work from there. So maybe if that's the if that's the brave new world we're living in, we'll be in uh, poised perfectly. Sure. A hell of a, hell of a lot better in uh, you know, looking at the bay than out in the <laughs> suburbs of San Antonio or something. <laughs> I know. I love San Antonio yeah. as my hometown and all, yeah. but I'd rather watch water yes. in the ocean versus water puddling on the ground somewhere. Yeah, no for doubt. Sure. Um, so you talked about loving oyster shucking. Mm-hmm. Um, I have recently learned how to do that. I won't say that I'm skilled. Oh yeah. Uh, but I bought a, a, a tote fish knife at um, the Italian cowboy out in Rockport. Yeah. And I love oysters, always have. Mm-hmm. And I never had actually shucked them myself other than one time with a pocket knife. And I learned yeah. that you don't do that. Oh gosh. Or that it's not the most efficient way, right? <laughs> yeah, what I do hope you think HR of, didn't hear that. Right? Well, it wasn't here at your yeah. shop. <laughs> okay, it was uh, at my house. Um, <laughs> but I think, I, I think it's interesting that when you have food that requires so much effort, mm-hmm. it, it, it kind of evolves a following, right? So my wife is from Beaumont, crawfish, same right. kind of an idea, not quite as hard as oyster shucking, frankly, right. but still, it takes a lot of time, both right. in prep of the food itself, although oyster shuck, oysters don't yeah. require as much prep, but prepping the crawfish, and then you're sitting there peeling right. them, and you could eat for hours and have like 50 calories. Yeah. And I feel like oysters are kind of the same way, like yeah. you, you expend so much effort. Why do you think it is that Oyster shucking attracted you, and then the the idea of eating oysters has been such a um, a, a part of the Water Street business. I, I think that's a good analogy. Uh, the crawfish thing, you know, those those um, regional foods that take a lot of effort, mm-hmm. brisket, 
Yeah, um, yeah. They inevitably involve cultures mm-hmm. around them, and and I in my time in Houston, I understood and experienced the crawfish culture. It's big there, right? Um, so right here on all these deltas and uh, uh, bays we have, um, you know, there's just so many awesome oysters. I mean, the January mm-hmm. oysters, this crop of January oysters from Copano are unbelievable, mm-hmm. um, and you know, there's just becomes this kind of mythical right, thing about. Right. Um, and I was talking to Stephen Ryback at MDR and about their ideas for some of the branding and like mm-hmm. messaging, and they really keyed in on that. Like the whole process is, is almost as good as the meal itself. Yes, of, so true. You know, flipping it over and doctoring them up mm-hmm. um, and doing your everyone's got their own way to eat it and they're opinionated about it. Um, so that <laughs> kind of yeah. So that wrapped me. You know, it's not just a cheeseburger, which right. people are opinionated about cheeseburgers too. Mm-hmm. Um, but right away, I was getting that um, kind of culture. You know, it's like this craft cocktail movie. Right. Before that came in, I was shucking oysters at uh, Oyster Bar, and you'd get these uh, people that are downtown for an event, mm-hmm. and, and they want to eat oysters. And so, you know, you get the people that wanted little ones or big ones, yep. and, and had specific requests. And then I'll never forget there was these two guys that were in town for a. a I think we had an American bank sponsored a boat show in the marina. Okay. And I and we were just slammed because sure. we got hit so hard. And uh, there's these two old salty boys, you know, beet red, yep. burnt, sunburned, <laughs> huge, like two 400 pounders. And they uh-huh. built at the bar and they both uh, wanted 12, or sorry, they both wanted six dozen oysters right then, all at oh. once. And they wanted me to watch them shuck because we, we built a little pad because we were sure. getting busy. And they're like, we don't want those ones on the eyes. We want you to shuck them. So, it was just fascinating to me to see how mm-hmm. interested people were. And that was kind of before they became sexy like they are now, right, too. So, right. um, I dug that. And then on the flip side, on my side, you know, the, the, there's the guest's opinions. You know, it's a skill. You get yeah. better at it. Right. And, and then there's kind of a machismo thing about that, too. <laughs> no question. Me and, and Two Tone, who we still have here, would be like side by side. And we, you know, we needed to shuck 2,000 oysters. Mm-hmm. And we're like going as fast as we can. That's or, right. So I think it's kind of fun, uh, like any craft, I can mm-hmm. think it's fun on both sides. You bet. And now that the farming is coming in, then we get to go even deeper. Into Absolutely. So. Do you think that um, we're going to see an influx of the char-grilled oyster like that we would see if we were in South Carolina or somewhere like that? I think so. We've got a, our own little proprietary right. recipe. It's not traditional. It's a paprika, mm-hmm. a very smoky flavor. Um, and for the record, it's awesome, and everybody should get some. Good, Go <laughs> thank you. Uh, yeah, when we're doing it right, I had to. We, 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 every once in a while, one of those cooks doesn't grate the parmesan right. That makes a difference. But um, <laughs> it's amazing how little things like that. Oh, can so the we all we talk. You wouldn't believe how right. boring our Tuesday meetings are. We talk about parmesan size and hush puppy texture. You bet. Um, so uh, anyway, we, we we have a dra- similar to Drago's recipe that's like uh, Worcestershire and lemon and parmesan. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've always been able to sell cooked oysters better. People are interested that they're, the person who doesn't eat the oyster is more willing to eat them cooked. You bet. So I definitely see that coming. So, um, um, and frankly, we've just been a little lazy on, on promoting those. But we've got, we've got a great house recipe and mm-hmm. we have yeah, a, a, a variety of cooked oysters. And I think that'll come. We're typically five years behind the market. Okay. Um, so be on the lookout for those. You bet. That's exciting. Yeah. I have... Uh... I have had char-grilled oysters in other places, and they're, uh, it's an adventure unto itself, but it has that same kind of um, routine and religion around it, right? right. 
um, because it can be done at home like your brisket and it can yes. be done in the restaurant and you know what the restaurant can't get it right like I can't do it at home but I'm doing it at home in a different whole different environment right and the humidity changes things and whatever else and um, my family my wife likes raw oysters but she prefers fried I go mm -hmm. raw and and pretty much straight up with a lot of heat my daughter one of them mm -hmm. will just take it right out the shell really and no no dressing nothing yeah. doesn't even care about um, frying it don't give me a fried oyster I just want mm -hmm. the raw slimy thing and that's yeah, it because that's, I want the salt rare out. yeah it is yeah. and she's eight and it, yeah. I have to tell her to slow down okay, <laughs> I, I, you've already had a dozen that's probably enough for someone who weighs 50 pounds yeah <laughs> uh, my other daughter We'll eat some raw, but she's really into more of the flavor profiles and the other ways you can prep them. Right. The Rockefeller in particular, because she loves yes. the Parmesan and the spinach and the, right. the, you know, the blast you get when you try it that way. So it's fun to find the, the, your own family experiencing the different ways you can enjoy oysters. Um, and you mentioned farming, which I know will create a whole different flavor profile. Mm -hmm. um, we've had Jenny Pollock um, from the Heart Research oh, Institute awesome, here yeah. on the show before. And, she talked about um, the biology of it, mm -hmm. but I know that your family was integral in helping uh, Representative Hunter and others get farming legalized, mm -hmm. um, which I want to be really clear that it wasn't illegal in the same sense that illegal drugs are illegal to farm. Right. <laughs> it was just not a provision under the Texas Parks and Wildlife that allowed for it for a host of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, some may call them the uh, oyster cabal. Yeah. But, <laughs> Uh, so you there, know about that. There was a yeah, there was a controlling group, mostly out of Galveston, mm -hmm. that affected the laws because they were strong lobbyists, mm -hmm. right? That's and that is true with all laws that get passed. But mm -hmm. this past legislative session a couple years ago, the Texas leg legislature finally authorized Parks and Wildlife to create rules to allow for individual oyster farming. So, talk to us about what that could mean for the Water Street business, and then really for oyster growth in the coastal bend. Sure. Um, well, first, I have to give all the credit to my father on that one. When, when I said he was 10% out of gas, we rerouted that 90% <laughs> right. to, to, to legislation. Whole new realm. So sure. poor Jenny had to deal with my dad all the time. Mm. But I'll be damned, he passed it. I mean, we have it hanging on. We have the bill hanging on our wall there. Um, so, and now the slow pace of government. So we're, we're, we're just, this year will be the year we finally get him in the water. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'll tell you a little bit about the problem of that most people don't know about the oyster business. Um, and, and to touch back on your point about the mysticism of like um, yeah. of seafood, mm -hmm. that's another thing we, we kind of ride is you know most people don't know how to cook seafood. Right. They don't, and uh, that's kind of a good thing for us. Sure. You know? Absolutely. I mean, some of our some of our cooks were like they're like, well, I don't eat seafood. And I'm like, well, you're gonna eat seafood now. You gotta <laughs> taste it. So there's a you forget there's a lot of people that don't eat seafood, and there's mm -hmm. even more people that don't know how to cook it. Right. But the the problem with that is they don't know anything about it mm -hmm. so they can be taken advantage of sure um and uh they just don't have the data in front of you know, people know black angus cattle and right. farming techniques and all that stuff no clue how the um seafood business works so it's rife with a lot of you know pirates and yeah. cheats and, and mislabeling i mean there's a long history of that yes in the business, yes right? and, and they are the descendants of pirates exactly so, right. you know, okay. exactly. Um, so uh so oysters but just laser focusing on oysters here um there's like the Gulf oyster. It's a mm -hmm. commodity. It'd be like oil. So it's right. a commodity. So the, the Gulf oyster business, whether they're from Florida or Texas, like, you know, South Padre, they're just a Gulf oyster. 
and the bays open and close depending on a lot of things. Seasonality, you know, mm-hmm. rain events could close a bay. Uh, the mean water temperature breeding cycles regulated by each state's uh, mm-hmm. departments. And so, um, just a quick question: so, closing a bay, you're referring to not literally the bay being physically closed, but close to farming, close to harvest. Okay, yes. Yeah. So, thank you. So, okay. so you know, Copano. So, for us, the the southernmost bay we get uh, oysters from is Copano. Well, I guess I should say Aransas. Okay. So, right there in front of Rockport and Copano, and that'll be the first to close. The temperatures will get higher there first, mm-hmm. and they'll say, okay we don't have these reefs available the states decided to shut these down for harvest as they approach breeding season mm-hmm. and at any given time if there's a big enough rain event they'll close them for 10 days and, okay. and monitor it so what that does for the purchaser is okay the oyster house is all right we're going to go buy from galveston now. right in a little bit of louisiana and we're this and we're going to repackage them and we're just going to call them gulf oysters sure and so you've got this varying quality mm-hmm. and you can never really tell, I mean, you can track the bay because they have to track the t- uh, tags, uh, but you can't really guarantee where these oysters are coming from your customer. Right. More so, our customer wants to know exactly where it's coming mm-hmm. from. They're interested in it and they, they assume it's coming right from our bays right out here. Right. So <clears throat> that keeps going, that trend goes up. So then Copano closes, Aransas closes, mm-hmm. San Antonio Bay will close. And then we're chasing the supply up the coast. And then by June, we'll get a bunch of Louisiana oysters. And they're muddy. Mm -hmm. And they taste great, but they're very, they grow different than a Texas oyster. Um, There's much more cost involved in shipping them down here. Mm -hmm. The oyster oyster houses pass that along to us. And then we try not to pass that along to the guests, but there's a reason everyone does these market prices. You bet. So we'll get to a point where basically Mississippi mm-hmm. and uh, the Florida Panhandle will be the last you know, couple bays right. available to sell Gulf oysters to anyone that buys them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, so they're super expensive. Um, they're being repackaged. You, can't really, you don't really know where it's coming from. Um, and then it'll shut. It'll be right. like, we're done. And then we've had multiple years where in August, there's just no oysters available. Mm-hmm. So then we have to go get a farmed oyster that has kind of figured out this process, right. you know. The damn French have been doing it for three, <laughs> 300 years. Texas finally gets That's around right. to it. We finally get around so, to it. <laughs> um, so it's a very, I guess in short, without boring uh, the layperson, it's just a very, uh, it's kind of a big rodeo. Mm-hmm. And, it's a, mm-hmm. and it's a complicated process. And it's uh, harder on the oyster houses. It's hard on the retailers. And um, it's hard on the resource, the right. wild resource, and then ultimately it's hard on the um, the guests because right. they don't can't count on their oysters. And everyone, mm-hmm. you know, we're no different. People come here on certain times of the year, and the oysters are expensive and they're low quality. Right. It's the best quality we can find. We work very hard to vet it, but you know, some, we got to have oysters. We're the oyster bar, and you'll see a big sandal size oyster that's muddy, mm-hmm. and and so all those people are going through these stresses. So. What I like about the oyster farming, um, you know, concept or prospect, and it's so rare to find this. Right. Um, uh, you know, uh, a lot of what we try to do with with recycle recyclables mm-hmm. or you know paper straws are big now. That stuff. It's more expensive on me, and it's a worse product to the guest. So it's not really fixing anything. It's just a. It's a because you're trying to make a statement or trying to make impact. Mm-hmm. The oyster farming. First, takes care of the resource. The, yep. Those those oysters you're not harvesting from the wild reefs are growing and mm-hmm. filtering the bay, and uh, you know animals are living and breeding on them. Um, so first, we're taking care of the bay. Then we're taking care of the suppliers. 
because they have a stable supply yep. of resource coming in. They can they can count and forecast their sales and be ready to meet demand. Mm-hmm. Um, so the farmer in the house has you know a method to the madness now. Exactly. For us, we don't have to go market price. We can we know the price and we can deliver quality to the guests, uh, and we don't have to deal with a. Seventy percent price spike and then a seventy percent fall, right. and, and then chasing the supply around. We can build bonds with the direct farmers mm-hmm. closer, and then ultimately um, the guest wins. The better quality. We can you can get whatever shape, size, taste, oyster right. you want to grow, um, and w- people can vote with their dollars rather than just buying mm-hmm. commodity. So I, I rarely see something just hit all the pins like that. It is pretty amazing. And uh, one thing that I'll, I'll mention also that I think is exciting for me, mm-hmm. um, I I know that I forget if it's Alabama or Mississippi, mm-hmm. but there's some place that is a is called Murder Point Farms. Yes. And you get Murder Point Oysters. And I think it's going to be really fun to see what our Texas farms come up with for their names. And then we'll order instead of saying, I want the whatever the oysters are that are from the East Coast yes. and they've all got their names. But you'll be able to say, I want the such and such oyster from wherever the farmer is right. in Copano or in Aransas or in San Antonio or maybe even further south if the waters permit, you know, and, and Parks and Wildlife says it's okay. So we'll be able to choose the farm ultimately, right? right? And I would assume at some point there'll be um, information provided by the oyster bar or whoever you're buying oysters from that Absolutely. says these are from this farmer. And then you can say, you know what, I actually know that guy or I know that mm-hmm. gal and I want to support that. It gets you the ability as the restaurateur to get even more local in your supplier and then to drive even more business for your local supplier. At, and keep it all here. Right. You know, right. And know your product. Um, so, yeah. I, and, you know, actually, um, we know uh, the gentleman at Murder Point. Okay. another guy my dad calls <laughs> sure, every week and bothers. Uh, he's a great guy and a great pioneer for the uh-huh. Gulf. He was one of the first okay. that was doing it in the Gulf. East Coast has done it for mm-hmm. 80, 100 years, you know, because of what because of the Bay's degradation, really. That's yeah. what unfortunately seems to be causing this. Mm-hmm. When, you know, when you run out of resource, you got to figure it out, and then people right. wait till you, you have to figure it out. Luckily, Texas looks like we're going to, you know, we, we kind of saw this bullet coming mm-hmm. and we're going to protect ourselves uh, and protect keep the resources healthy right now, but it, it, it's heading the wrong direction. Right. So hopefully we can solve this early. It is. I mean, oysters are to some extent what Dr. Pollock mentioned. They're, they're a renewable resource so long as they're managed properly. Right. But what the farming will do, an additional benefit is it will allow for the existing reefs not to necessarily lay dormant, but to rebuild at a more natural life cycle. And Absolutely. you as a restaurateur will still support the rebuilding of the reefs, but it won't be such a major necessity because less of the oysters will be pulled off the reefs during any given season right. because the farming will supplement or supplant some of that. And I'm sure Jenny told you about how important that is as a key t- keystone species to these bay systems. Absolutely. So, you know, everyone we leave in is good. and and. and uh, another thing people just don't see, I mean, some of the fishermen probably see it, but the technology for harvesting oysters is the 1900s technology. Right. It's a bucket with chain teeth. Yeah. And they'll, the same reef that you fish on is just, they'll come by and swipe it. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, Apalachicola Bay in Florida was the supplier. I think it, at one point it was 80% of the wow. U.S. oysters were coming out of that bay. Huge bay, mm-hmm. great river coming into it. No one could ever exhaust the oyster supply. They're out of oysters. Right. They are done. And so we're watching. It can happen mm-hmm. if, you, if, you, if you don't manage it and, you know, exacerbated by, you know, water and urban sprawl, all that sure. stuff. So, um, so, 
yeah, it's it's a no-brainer to me. And I think what people don't understand about the oyster farming is, uh, you know, typically we've worked hard for 30 years to try to not have farm-raised fish and why mm-hmm. you know you know wild-caught goldfish and fresh, never frozen. Farming is kind of a four-letter word in the uh, sure. in, in the industry, but it's the exact opposite for oysters. They're mm-hmm. filter feeders. They're not. They don't. They they clean the water. They don't put anything bad back into it. In fact, they can depurate like toxins out of the water. Right. So they're so I, that's going to be kind of a hurdle for our marketing because people are so conditioned that farm raised is not good. Mm-hmm. But for a spe- uh, animal like that, it's it's you want to have it farm raised, right? Uh, and keep those other ones, wild ones, in the Gulf mm-hmm. uh, doing their thing. So and it's you know I think people might be confused when they talk about farm-raised oysters. We're not literally talking about somebody builds a tank on their property and throws a ton of fish in it and raises them there where they don't have any impact on the greater environment. By farming oysters, you're literally using the same waters where the reefs are. You're just doing it in a way where the reefs stay themselves and regenerate as according to their natural cycle. And the farmed oysters are pulled out of the same water. They're not in generally speaking, some stock pond on somebody's property in the middle of, you know, Laredo, Texas right. or whatever, right? Yeah, it's almost like a oyster ranching. It's like right. a grazing lease. Yeah, exactly. So there's a, That's there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a bunch of phytoplankton out there that they mm-hmm. eat, and we keep ours in cages suspended in the water column. They're not in the mud, mm-hmm. so you'll see a really clean oyster. So they're living in unused water column. Right. So they're, it's not invasive to the system, and they're just eating the excess phytoplankton. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I think we got to educate people about that, yeah. um, but our hope is, if 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 I know Texans, hopefully we can blaze past that because just like you're saying, mm-hmm. I want Shamrock Reef oysters. Exactly. I want I right. want Lydia Ann Channel right. oysters. Yes. The, the, I think the branding potential. Texans are prideful people, and, yeah. I, and I'm one of them, and uh, I want to eat the oysters from the from the area I am. The, right. The, the Marewar is the yes. big. Uh, word for that so I remember thinking you know you've got you've got the battle of mesquite versus post oak versus live oak in the barbecue world right and you've got the central Texans who will beat you over the head with their post oak if you even dare bring a mesquite train anywhere close to them but you got people in South Texas that are like I don't even know what post oak is does that even exist I've never seen a tree that tall and so you've got this friendly battle over those inputs for how they're cooking and I think the same will be true like you mentioned you'll have not just those that are regionally proud and want from their region but like hey I discovered so and so who grows outside of you know Galveston Bay, and right. you got to try his because they're whatever, right? right. And you'll get this come uh, this kind of friendly rivalry among sure. the producers too, just like you have among the smokers. Yeah. So that and that's the great um, that's the great vision for it over the next decade that we hope to develop. That as we're protecting the bays, we're really building a new business mm-hmm. in, in a cottage industry for the state. Yep. And I know if you can force grapes to grow in Texas <laughs> right. that we I mean we're not we're not swimming upstream here this is perfect oyster habitat yes perfect salinity yes. so um, Texans are gonna jump in mm-hmm. with two feet about how good Texas oysters are and and each farm so our vision is obviously we want oyster bar to have proprietary oysters from our farm mm-hmm. and um, and educate people about it and be uh, early in that education process in that uh, industry building process but ultimately, we want to see, um, you know, Corpus Christi become the seafood capital of Texas again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you're down here and you're, uh, you know, with your daughter eating oysters, you're at a graduation American Bank Center, right. and you're enjoying downtown, you're seeing box trucks come and take our great products and take them all the way up to Dallas. Amen. Because this is where all the good stuff is from. 
So uh, we've lost that. Mm -hmm. Just like you were saying, we've lost the historic record. We've lost the history of our seafood culture here. And uh, I think this is such a great opportunity to get the first first leg back. And then we want the commercial fishers back that are doing it yep. sustainably. And, um, so that that's the ultimate vision. First, our restaurant will have the best, Texas's best oysters, and then mm -hmm. we want to send them to other restaurants and, and, and lift Corpus up. Why do you think Water Street has survived for the 30 plus years it's been in business, uh, while other, I'll just say the environment in downtown Corpus has ebbed and flowed? I think my dad and his ownership philosophy has been extremely customer centric. Um, you know, we've, we're by no means perfect and have, had a, have survived a bunch of hurdles and missteps and falls. But you know, one thing uh, that is uh, in the DNA of this company because of him is, you know, you, whatever the guest wants, we give them, and, mm -hmm. and we follow what they want, and have to, you know, some of it's guessing and, and trying to interpret. Sure. But he has built a very guest-centric culture, and and he, you know, it's kind of funny. We think we're good innovators, but you know, water, we don't change a lot. You know, so uh, we he's got a uh, maybe we don't change that much, but it's not for lack of his. Uh, you mentioned earlier as you were talking about the history of your work here at Water Street, you kind of have the instruction to don't touch the walnut dressing. Right. And of course, um, restaurants can become famous for uh, what I'll just call random ingredients sometimes, right? Yeah. And I think the walnut dressing is one of those uh, very unique offerings of Water Street that you just don't find, at least I've never really found somewhere else, not to the, to the level of quality that is offered mm -hmm. here. And I like to eat. Um, so I cover that a lot of other places. But um, what do you think it was about about that that particular menu item that just struck a chord with your customers and has has sustained itself on the menu for so long? You know, I I, I wish I if I could get that formula, I would pay a lot of money <laughs> right. for it. It's uh, uh, you know, you never know how the stars align. Uh, I, yeah, we knew true. my dad knew and felt good about his play, timing in the market to start kind of Creole food. It was really mm -hmm. hot back then. I was, you know, just a, a glint in my mother's right. eye at that point. But, <laughs> but back then, apparently, Paul Prudhomme and Black and Redfish sure. was taking over the nation. Uh -huh. and it was this whole, and people were interested in that culture. So he was right in the midst of that. So I think he knew he'd get busy because people wanted to come eat, you know, it'd be like sushi. People want to come eat sure. Black and Redfish and Creole foods. And then uh, I think he did a good job early with the culinary development. He had a great little, uh, a chef partner there. Okay. And then and then, you know, met the demand. I think he mm -hmm. can they could kept, they kept up good food, good service so the people kept coming back and they just develop, you know, their favorites. Mm -hmm. and they kind of just get parceled out and certainly walnut was one our tartar creole sure. mustard in there. Mm -hmm. So there's some very unique flavors. I just don't think people have had that tarragon vinegar flavor right. and they're like, "Oh man, that's so good. It's super mm -hmm. craveable." I mean, you know, uh, I, I'm still not tired of it after right, you know, right. 31 years. So um, I think it, that was unique and uh, had its place in the market. And we've had seen a lot of people try to rip it off locally. Mm -hmm. And um, the picayune sauce was yep. super complicated and interesting. So I think what what has come out is maybe like core four flavors that are really unique to the uh, business. A lot of them are you know, the sauces mm -hmm. and, the, and then then the classics. You know, people love fried shrimp. Has right. been, it's fried shrimp and oysters. You know, there's not so much we're doing to that than just finding the best quality and mm -hmm. doing a good job with it. And then we pair, you know, the classics with our, you know, four unique flavors, and those have stood the test of time. We look and all, we do all these efforts and bring out these new uh, recipes, and the same right at the top four are always the same, right. you know. So, <laughs> um, 
but to, you know, you always you're always looking for that next home run ball. So mm-hmm. you, there's got to be a little innovation there and a little risk taking. Um, but uh, we're grateful and we're grateful for those flavors, and we, uh, you know, we love them. We talk mm-hmm. about them all the time, and 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 you know want to stay consistent for the guests. Do you find that there, over the course of the history of Water Street, there has been one dish or one sauce that has always been at the top kind of as a standalone, or is it is it the four or five flavors that really just kind of keep battling for first place in the customer's eyes? Yeah, I would say it's, uh, our sweetest sauces are familiar to people. Our, our cocktail's very distinctive. It's like mm-hmm. very chilly. Um, it's not just all horseradish and ketchup. It's got it's got like right. pepper. It's just kind of a different take on it. Um, but certainly walnuts, the far and away, the brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got some great fish sauces. And the Veracruz came from an old Otrovest concept. And okay. there's some familiarity there. But I would say it's Gulf Brown, great quality fried shrimp. Mm-hmm. Uh, not everyone's doing Gulf Browns. Okay. They're the kind of iodine-y. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why our ta- ours tastes different. And then walnut dressing. I gotta. I might just make a walnut dressing store. <laughs> yeah. uh, honestly, bottling it and shipping it and a store out of it with yeah. you know maybe it can go on like a some kind of a poor boy as a yeah. dressing or something you know um, like a I know one of the traditional New Orleans poor boys is really roast beef right and yeah that seafood and it has its own special gravy that goes with it and mm-hmm. maybe there's a a new kind of a poor boy for Water Street or for the oyster bar that is based around yeah the, we'll have to keep dressing. working on it I, you know we've. We learned a lot of lessons too, especially all the change uh, that I've put the organization through. And, mm-hmm. You know, we we played with a couple of those sauces, and, and a lot of it was to like let's get a better quality, um, let's bring in a better quality mayonnaise base for this. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we touched it, people were like, "What, what the happened? hell have you done?" <laughs> right, exactly. you, you, like, picketing in the streets. Okay, I learned my lesson. I right, learned my exactly. lesson. You know. I'll, I'll experiment on the margins. Yes, not with yeah, the exactly. Dressing, right? So so I did that, and, and you know you know. I don't have any regrets because we learn from everything, but mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the day, we're a guest-focused culture, and we got to give people what they want, sure, uh, and then keep experimenting and show them other things to see if they want something new. You know. So when your dad invited you to come back or recruited you to come back, um, did he give you a, you know, Richard? Here are the things that I want you to handle, or was it more of a I need, I want you to come in and bring your big ideas to the table, or was it kind of a combination of the above? You know, I think it was, um, he's always been, you know, um, and he would tell you he's just kind of a pure entrepreneur, high tolerance for risk, okay. always chasing the grand slam. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want singles or doubles. He wants to hit it over sure, the fence. Sure, sure. So it. probably, he probably didn't give me the right advice because I think he wanted big ideas mm-hmm. and wanted change and welcomes it naturally. And it might not have been what the business needed at that time. Okay. There was a lot of foundational stuff I ended up working on, and, and, and I feel proud about that. We've, mm-hmm. done, we've done a lot of team building and you know stuff that's not sexy that you just got to do. Um, but um, I was a little distracted and a little pressured, I think, to kind of come up with the big idea. Okay. Um, because he's just excited about that. He's, mm-hmm. he's excited by passionate people. I like sure. passionate people. Um, but you can get you can get lost in that sometimes too. You got to remember there's the day to day. Right. Nothing more important than the day to day and the guests in the dining room today. So, um, you know, if I was as seasoned as, as I was now coming into the business, I probably uh, could have read through that and, mm-hmm. and scheduled it and kind of you know figured it out in my mind. But I was just you know right. I was drinking out of a water hose. Was, I mean, we had tail fins going. I was learning yeah. everything mm-hmm. at once, and there was a lot of. Um, you know, deferred maintenance and projects and just stuff we had to get mm-hmm. done. Um, so that first five years was, you know, 
TCU had not, didn't hold a candle the amount of learning right. that I was of I was absorbing absorbing sure. during that, and then you know pandemic and hurricane in there too. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I could conquer the world now. <laughs> You've had some adventurous yeah. years for sure. It's been outside a wild of ride. your control. Um, um, so yeah, I would say his mandate is like he wa- he wanted me to have it. He wanted me to bring my ideas and build on it. And then you know, of course, there's friction, and you know, you everyone wants that, but then when it when it comes to the time to do it, there's right. you know all those family dynamics. So. Um, but he's a, he's an idea guy, mm-hmm. concept guy. Do you feel like that has become a natural role for you? To, so if he's the, um, I don't want to disparage your role yeah. here at the at the business, but if he's the dreamer mm-hmm. and you're a bit of the doer, which was maybe the ten percent that he wanted mm-hmm. to relinquish, yeah. right? As he refocuses energies on other projects um, in the legislature, in particular. Do you feel like you have a natural affinity for the doer role as someone who is also a dreamer? Or do you yeah. feel like that's been, oh my goodness, not only have I had to learn how to operate a business, but I've also had to learn how to be this other kind of individual? I, I would say I'm a self-loathing artist dreamer. Okay. Because <laughs> I, I, I want so badly, my wife is so like pure operator. Okay. You know, she would, this would be like a walk in the park to her, you know, right. day-to-day checklist. You know, do <laughs> and it's so I not in it. my DNA, but right. I have such reverence for it. Because it's what makes the world tick, you mm-hmm. know, in, in our world. You know, you need the artist to build it, but then what makes a successful business is all the thousand steps a day, doing right. it consistently every day. So um, I gravitate towards it and hunt and try to build teams that are good at ops mm-hmm. and good at uh, focus and calm and poise and stability because I am I, you know Apple didn't fall far from the tree we, we want to we, we want to build 15 restaurants sure. we want to do oyster farming right, maybe, right. maybe scallop farming next and then, <laughs> of course. you know so we're already dreaming that we've already built that in our minds uh-huh. so we're on to the next yeah one. done with oyster farming we've already got those going let's move on to this other thing even though those aren't actually in the water yet yes sure, exactly of course. so I mean the pace of government and our ideas aren't marrying well so um, poor representative hunter so we have to self, we have to self-flagellate all the time or I do about like get back yeah. and, 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 and focus on the details so um, I, I'm, I, I, one thing I would say is I understand and respect the importance maybe more than he did about mm-hmm. that, wh- how important that is to the role. So I just worked hard on team building it and hiring the talent around me so it wasn't, it wasn't lynched around me. Mm-hmm. There was a time when the, it was all lynched around my operation you know, as a 26-year-old, right. you know, <laughs> op- my ability to operate um, the store. So. Um, mm-hmm. As we've built the team and grown up the talent, a lot of it's been internal and finding the personality traits we want mm-hmm. in uh, the store level leaders. It's I've now been able to strike the balance better and getting back to planning and mm-hmm. st- strategizing about where our profit and our guests are going to come from in the next five years mm-hmm. and, and uh, what do we need to do to develop our real estate. That I'm, more, I'm much more natural at that. Um, and uh, interested, naturally interested in thinking about that all the time of how to fix things mm-hmm. and where we want to go, uh, and what the best direction is. Um, so, I hope I answered your question. Yeah, absolutely. Way. And I think it's it's always hard for the dreamer to. It's hard for both personalities to do the other, right? Mm-hmm. Especially as, um, and I don't speak from personal experience, but I've known enough uh, friends who have entered into family businesses to know. Um, sometimes they're brought in as the, hey, I'm tired of doing this part of it, whether it's the right. dreaming or the doing, I'm tired of it, it's yours, but wait a minute, hey, that the guy that it gets dumped on, that's not really my personality either. Right. And the reasons yeah. you hate it are the same reasons, well not hate it, but you don't want to do it, are the same reasons that I don't want to do it. Right. But then I think it's always fun to see as you've, as you've experienced, um, the person who is brought into that position 
figures out how to do it mm -hmm. and makes it successful, but also builds their own exit plan from that particular part of the business too, right? right. And it kind of sounds like that's what you've been able to do here, which is focusing on hiring the right, the other individuals who have those skill sets and putting them in place so that you can allow them to do what they do best and not ask them to do the things that they don't want to do. And right. you can do the things that are best suited for your personality, dreaming with your dad, planning out right. you know the future for the block here and all that kind of stuff. Um, was there, were there complications added in your transition into leadership here because you had not, um, you know, you left town and you yeah. went somewhere else and you pursued a different career and now you're back and you're not back as a busboy anymore, but now you're right. back as a leader of the business. What was that experience like for you? And then what have you learned from your, from the employees of Water Street that, that helped you become better in your job? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think it was hard on some of the old guard, you know, they, uh, we didn't, I don't, I don't know if we had a, my dad had articulated what the plan was okay. and what the succession plan was. So I think there was some angst there and maybe people thought, you know, they, there were certainly people who didn't think that, that I would take it over. So it was okay. an adjustment period for them and that was hard and we kind of had to remove some people and go mm -hmm. through those growing pain, pains, you know, it's a, uh, happens every time a leadership transition happens. You have to go through it. And I had to select who was gonna get me there, you right. know, and who was gonna buy into the program with me. So, you know, I, I think this is a trope with any f first founder. You mm -hmm. know, they did, he did all the work. Right. You know, and, and he had a wake of people that wanted uh, to be along for the ride. And um, so he, the whole business lynched around him. And that's not me, I'm not the founder. Mm -hmm. You know, I can grow it and I can, try to make it better and make it a real strong business, uh, but I will never be able to replace the founder role. And I understood that early. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the whole organization was poised to look up to the founder, what do we do? You know? right. and, and, we, and I needed to build more like a fleet of ships rather mm -hmm. than one, uh, one guy uh, on the vanguard. You bet. So, so there's, there's no doubt in my mind what I offered my dad wasn't, you know, you know, restaurant experience and all this prowess and all mm -hmm. this, um, you know, recipe development or whatever I was going to do, what I offered him was just trust. And mm -hmm. I think that's hard. A founder has trouble letting go of their dream to anyone. And I, that was, that was what I offered the business is I, I can be a steward of it mm -hmm. and, and, and I'll, f and you can trust me. And, and he was very patient with me through all the, uh, all the, you know, he couldn't, I would have been fired 15 times if I was just some director of operations or something. So he's very patient uh, with me through that process. Uh -huh. And he could have never done that to anyone else. Right. So we just, you know, we were the right fit and I just had to find my way to do it. So, um, but it's hard, you know, he's watching it and he's watching like his old, you know, some of his people that aren't going to be my people. It's just mm -hmm. when that comes, it's just funny to watch how businesses evolve. You bet. And I think there was, there was a tough two years there, but now I think he's enjoying seeing it mm -hmm. and it's still rolling. And, you know, you know, so it's, he's enjoyed it. He's learned a lot from the process too. I mean, he would, I mean, he would be here 12 hours a day, all day. Sure. He was the man and uh, was nervous to let it go and would it would still run without that. And when people ask for Brad mm -hmm. and he's at the farm, right. how, how's the business gonna, and, and I had concerns about that. So sure. we've been slowly trying to recruit leaders, build, build hosts of the restaurant mm -hmm. and transition to a non-founder regime. So, and, and I don't think I'm doing anything special or um, I think that story has probably been told a thousand times. So, but we're just going through all the mm -hmm. classic growing pains of it. Um, it's been fun. I definitely feel like I've grown a lot. 
through the whole process. Where did the sushi room concept come from? So the, sushi was one of those innovations um, that my dad are, just said, we're going to do sushi. You know? <laughs> surprise. Okay. Yeah, surprise. We've been flying okay. and blackening for yeah, he goes, We're going to yes. roll it up now. I told you we were the same. Right. Um, <laughs> we, so he comes back from some trip, I'm sure, and it was probably you know mm-hmm. us and you know Las Vegas or something right. on a family trip, and he goes, all right, we're going to do sushi. So one thing he does, though, is he doesn't spare an expense, and he does it well. And we mm-hmm. recruited an internal candidate, centered school in California for four months, paid wow. for her to be there. Do the do the sushi program complete gamble. So what used to be a little banquet room off the side of the oyster bar, mm-hmm. we remodeled real quick and made it a sushi program, and it was one of those just hits. It just went bang yep. and um, risky, but you know who would have thought? You know your Creole blackened fish, right. and then you know <laughs> sushi, and that sushi started to develop its own kind of mm-hmm. culture over Absolutely. time. It's just funny how that how that evolves, mm-hmm. and you, you hire a few of these chefs, and they start taking it. To, it was kind of surfer sushi is the way I call it. Mm-hmm. It's not traditional by any means. Got a bunch of white boys back there right. rolling. But um, it kind of took on, it's kind of fresh and lighter and consistent. It wasn't super innovative, but it was, you know, the flavors of of, of California, right. like red bell pepper and guacamole yep. or avocados. Um, so I saw that opportunity. I just saw this business growing and growing. Uh, and I was like, it one they're very limited on space the ticket times are horrible i don't know if you remember it would take like 45 or 50 mm-hmm. minutes to get sushi and we were struggling with that and um recently uh, and we knew and i knew that the future of oysters was farming mm-hmm. and we've every good oyster bar in the country has an oyster bar on display and right. they've got and they've got to put on a show mm-hmm. if you're going to keep up and we were you know had it just kind of in a little sink behind the bar and no one could see our oyster program so I was. That's where I'm. Fair. I feel fairly strong, and I find like a problem, and I'll try to find. I'll mm-hmm. try to solve it uh, with the least risk possible. So there was a thousand foot space right behind us, uh, and I knew a re- kitchen remodel was coming. So like, so I just thought, let's give them more space. We're going to open this concept, mm-hmm. kind of ride this poke wave. In the meantime, we can get our uh, oyster. Uh, bar improved right. and give them more room and let them execute more and uh all in the meanwhile we're not hiring any people we're just building them little things right so we didn't it wasn't like building a new restaurant with the all risk and mm-hmm. I, I knew that on day one if no one came into that sushi room that we're just gonna execute sushi we're gonna be right. fine and it might take a while to build the culture for poke bowls maybe people maybe corpus isn't ready yet i don't know but you know i know that i can give the sushi chefs a clean nice better facility mm-hmm. Uh, the kitchen can get more room to operate, and uh, we can uh, parlay it into a better oyster program right. in three years. So um, I like to I like to try to get all those dots aligned, mm-hmm. and it turned out it was it was a, it was a big hit. You know, Absolutely. We, my labor my labor was a little high. I didn't I wasn't <laughs> expecting all those sushi chefs in there, but the first year. But man, we were fast with sushi, yeah. and then uh, had some really great poke bowls. And now that's kind of caught on. There's poke around the mm-hmm. city. And uh, we're real happy with that concept. So we were ba- basically able to uh, take an existing little program and just dress it up a little bit and mm-hmm. uh, make it a restaurant without right. having all that cost involved. So that was kind of my scheme mm-hmm. uh, to get that whole uh, oyster bar restaurant to be a seafood emporium. And that's what we always dreamed. We wanted to just be no question of where you're going to get seafood when you're in Corpus, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be sushi, raw bar, or just Creole fried shrimp kind of deal. You bet. We've, my wife and I have um, experienced Acme Oyster in New Orleans, and you're very much right that there's a 
there's a show to it. You mm-hmm. know, even if it is just knock the thing open and throw it on ice, right? right? There is a there's an element of showmanship and theater that goes into it, and being able to put that more front and center in the oyster bar has has changed the environment in there. Right. And then at the same time, and I think this is kind of true across Water Street as a as a whole set of businesses, the shared kitchen concept helps you manage your overhead significantly, I would assume. So for sure. the sushi room guys are rolling rolls, whether it's ordered in Oyster Bar or ordered by someone dining actually in the sushi room. Right. It doesn't matter to the to the actual diner. They can right. choose which place they want to eat in, but the guys doing the work are doing the work regardless of where the diner is. And, and sharing that cost has got to be pretty beneficial. Absolutely. We were trying to, you know, labor is such a uh, major concern for the future of our mm-hmm. industry it's getting more and more expensive and restaurants just take a lot uh, right to go you need it's a labor-intensive business mm-hmm. I, you, I, we have this little we, we're the smallest we've ever been um, with just two restaurants right now we obviously got plans for more but we've got 200 employees yeah. you know it just takes a lot to make it happen that's right and um, so anything we can do to make their lives easier and make management lives easier mm-hmm. we try to do so we felt with, like, <clears> just like you said we felt we could give uh, for free, essentially, we could give our guests uh, alternative experience, mm-hmm. lighter, healthy. I don't want to go get fried shrimp and wait in line. Let's right. just run and get a poke bowl, and uh, and just add seats to the existing restaurant. Get them closer to the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of learning curve of how to manage that, but now that we got the the old uh, all that old equipment out and the new pristine, it's really running like a top. Mm-hmm. So um, so anyway, I, I feel good about it. But man, it's Change is hard, not only internal, but certainly external. Like, dragging our guests through that was a process. And, um, you know, a lot of, we had to reduce the menu. I mean, and we had plans to re-expand it, but, you know, we, the cooks needed to train. Mm-hmm. And we could, I couldn't sail them off the edge. So, anyway, as now we're finally lapping a year, now we can just, we don't have facility maintenance issues. Right. We don't have labor issue. We don't, we're not prepping back yep. somewhere else. We can just get better every year now. And that was, you know, I always knew that we were going to have to um, take care of that bell cow mm-hmm. and uh, remodel it before I could do any growth. So, man, it feels good to get that. I bet it does. I bet <laughs> man, it, does. it was a wild ride. As we, um, as we kind of dipped our toes in a little bit to what the future holds for Water Street, um, to the extent that you're comfortable sharing publicly some of the plans, let's talk about what new concepts might be coming or what changes people can expect here in the Water Street block. Um, sure. So, uh, I'll, talk, I'll touch a little bit about Seafood Company for anyone who remembers it. Um, it was about three years ago. It's kind of blowing my mind. <laughs> but um, so we had, uh, uh, and anyone who doesn't remember it, we were had twin restaurants, mm-hmm. essentially. There was the Water Street Oyster Bar in the front, and it was kind of known as the tourism restaurant and, and the people that like to go party. You know, right. it was loud. Right. And uh, then we had <clears throat> another one with a, just a twin mini right behind it that was, believe it or not, bigger. Um, and it was quieter. Uh, it didn't have the raw bar. We could get you oysters, but it didn't have like mm-hmm. it didn't quite have the show. And the locals liked it. You could get it back from Chaparral. So it'd be like having two papados right next to each right. other, two chilies. I mean, it was just <laughs> the same exact concept. And that it's it's what we knew. It's how mm-hmm. I knew the business growing up. It ran great for a while, and, and it's funny how it worked. But then at Hurricane Harvey. Uh, we were already getting jamming up against labor problems mm-hmm. and trying to staff two kitchens and you know people could feel it you know right. oh, seafood company was bad it took an hour and a half because we couldn't get the food out last night and you're and uh, but it was all trying to execute the same menu so we were already kind of running into those problems there and mm-hmm. then hurricane harvey happened and we lost half our staff right we did get some damage to the building but nothing that couldn't probably have been repaired in three months so 
we were thinking in this room, we were thinking, what are we going to do? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. um, we can't open that store back up. We don't even know if the business is going to warrant it. I remember it was yep. a wild time back then. Yeah. So, so we're like, okay, we're just going to run the front. We don't know what tourism is going to look like. That's done. We're running into the slow season. We're going to run the front. It turns out that we moved all of our sales to the front. Like, so we just ran the front. We absorbed 100% of the sales mm-hmm. of the seafood company through the front awesome. restaurant and then built 10%. And we were like, I was looking at it. <laughs> that was wasn't like, supposed to happen. I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, we were forecasting, you know, what we could absorb. And there's certain right. people that just don't like that loud restaurant. But um, like anything, there's a critical mass where now we've got all of our good people in one store. Mm-hmm. And we've got enough management to do it. And right. we were just, tickets were good. Food was better. We could we could execute. And I think people felt that. Mm-hmm. And we kind of light bulb switched. And we're like, oh man, we can't do that again. Right. We can't, we can't run two restaurants and... You know, we had a, we had four managers in the back and five managers mm-hmm. in the front. It was just a big operation. Um, so anyway, we we've reassessed and we don't want to reopen the same concept back there, but mm-hmm. we do not want to participate longer than three years. Didn't mean for it to be three years, right? With a closed business downtown, you know, we throw darts at people that close business downtown, <laughs> right. and then we have a closed business on Chaparral Street. So I'm working on it. it I promise. Happens. So uh, soon, we're, our, our goal is to build. Um, the Oyster Bar customer's second favorite restaurant. Okay. So we want something in between Surf Club and uh, Oyster Bar. We've we've kind of moved Oyster Bar nicer because mm-hmm. the fish is getting expensive. Right. And I don't want to yield on quality. So if we're going to start hitting $40 for fish, we've got to be able to execute a $40 restaurant right. per, per plate restaurant. I don't want to... Uh, I don't want to skimp. So it's kind of easing up a little, almost touching that fine dining world mm-hmm. uh, for Corpus. And, uh, you know, we got Surf Club, we're where we like it. Right. Casual, casual, <laughs> casual. So we want something in between. So we're, we're going to, uh, uh, we're looking at, you know, Ultra Vest concepts and okay. bringing that back. And maybe, w- w- is it now the time Corpus needs a, kind of a fun uh, medium concept with mm-hmm. a giant patio? Um, so that, that's kind of what we're looking at right now. Hopefully, uh, 2022 early, we're going to get the outside open this summer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, that was a building uh, for people who are uh, looking at it. We just couldn't ever get it leased for any long period of time mm-hmm. at any market rate. And uh, we just looked at it. And I looked at how much it was going to cost, like you were saying earlier, to just get this remodeled. I mean, a right. roof would have been 80 or 100 grand. AC package have been four hundred thousand. Wow. Mm-hmm. All getting it up to code. I was just like, I can't. The market's not gonna not gonna support this. Right. Um, and I, I'm not just gonna do it on speculation. Hope someone comes lease. So I figured uh, the best thing to do with that is if we're gonna get, be committed to opening the restaurant next door to it, mm-hmm. we want something that's gonna make it stand out mm-hmm. and be a destination. It's harder and harder to draw people from the south side. You gotta be at the top of your game. So. We wanted a kind of premier patio, mm-hmm. make it uh, make it uh, a little less pressure to be the most amazing food on earth. Right. So, so if it's the most fun atmosphere too, we can get uh, that customer. So uh, that's the plan. Twenty twenty two, we'll have all of our block completing mm-hmm. in. So uh, also, I want to hear you said you have an idea for downstairs, but in the meantime, we're planning on. Uh, bringing back some of the agua java recipes downstairs and opening a bakery as an ancillary business to. Um, uh, our restaurants. Mm-hmm. So we uh, a little anecdote about what made me finally decide to start doing an in-house baking program. Uh, 
Water Street's bread's been famous too. I probably right. should have mentioned that. Right. With the walnut dressing, we do have this crusty kind of sourdough French mm-hmm. bread, and it was baked for us in a bakery in Dallas that got closed by the riots in June. Oh man, can't get it anymore. Mm-hmm. They can't make it, and so we're like a proprietary product that was just for us. We can't get it, and the bread's kind of lame right now. And <laughs> I was like, you know what? I'm not. Gonna, I want control back. Right. And and and, 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 and I don't want to pay some vendor the money if I could pay myself and do it uh, with a local business storefront. Mm-hmm. So. Um, we're gonna get Agua Java rebuilt uh, next, and then uh, and then we have plans for. Uh, I can't really release them all yet. We got exciting plans for the catering uh, mm-hmm. business too. So awesome. The ultimate goal <clears throat> is that the Water Street Market becomes this kind of uh, diverse destination mm-hmm. for food service downtown, and then you can start here and then go hit the bar drag and uh, and have excellent local foods uh, at any price range you want to find. Mm-hmm. So. Breakfast day part for the bakery, burgers, beer, live music, fajitas and margaritas, uh, Creole seafood and sushi. So we think that gives us a nice swath in yeah. the market spot and the marketplace. Uh, of course, we'll be seafood heavy everywhere. Just mm-hmm. the tourist needs it, demands it, and um, and maybe I'll finally be done with Water Street. I don't know. <laughs> you know, we, my, I'm sure me and my dad will cook up something next that we want to do. So. Of course, that's um, the nature of being a being a pair of dreamers, right? Yes. So hopefully, once we get our kind of property developed here, we can do some offsite growth stuff mm-hmm. that's always been on the docket. But I have no intention to leave downtown until I've done a good job and leave it really, really sound. So, have you found um, as we kind of near the wrapping this um, discussion mm-hmm. up, have you found that Water Street has um, has a pretty significant influence on other businesses wanting to be downtown? I think so. I try not to give myself that much pressure, but I, 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 I do think my dad was so, was so tenacious, like we mm-hmm. discussed, that and probably went through periods that others wouldn't uh, right. and just stuck it out down here. So I, 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 I think it's pretty clear that we, if we left downtown, we would affect downtown. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Uh, so I think we have some responsibility to keep our doors open. Right. I mean, even if the bakery under downstairs doesn't turn a profit, it's the right thing to do um, because we can't just have closed storefronts. It's just embarrassing when we walk by it and we look at it. It's just like no good. So um, I think business begets business, mm-hmm. and the whole you know high tide floats all boats. Um, downtown's been through a bunch of you know projects and problems, yep. and the, I, I won't been too much time on that that all the locals know that what it's been uh, it was all an effort to get it to a better spot mm-hmm. but it definitely affected and hurt and, and bruised up the businesses down here um, and we have no interest in being the only destination down here we got it it's it's too darn difficult right and um, the business is difficult enough as it is so we want to be part of a great neighborhood with great neighbors mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're active, active in that, and always welcoming, um, you know, new businesses, provided they don't come in and just try to steamroll uh, each other. And I think Goldfish and Bus are a good example of they kind of complement each other. Not right. the same; they're they're in the same business, but they're not trying to, you know, they're they're doing it with different mm-hmm. angles. And you can quite literally uh, throw a stone from one patio to the other. Yes, and, and but they uh, do. They I always I always call Casey out. Casey Lane at House of mm-hmm. Rock, great guy. He he came from. Uh, our restaurant he was a general manager at surf club one of the best we've ever had 
and he easily could have gone over there and just done burgers, nachos, and, right. and, and, and just come right country. at you, right? Come right and at he you. He easily could have done it yep. and just say, I'm going to take your bit. And, 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 but, you know, these high integrity neighbors understand the tapestry we're trying to build and do their own thing and he's done a great job over there so i I need to stop picking on him and give him or you know always using him as an example but (laughs) i'm will forever be grateful for that you know so that kind of that kind of opens up to a question i wanted to ask about the the experience that water street had during the covid closures and then the slow reopenings and the re-reclose all the kind of stuff that that everybody's familiar with we've been through y'all did something and correct me if i'm stepping out of bounds here but Y'all did something that I thought was really unique among the businesses in downtown. Not only did you quickly figure out curbside mm-hmm. and jumped on the bandwagon with the downtown folks in doing that, and that helped probably give other people opportunities for their own sales that might have just disappeared mm-hmm. too. But you sold things like a market, yeah. you know? And, and I thought that was a, a very interesting way. I'm sure there was a business case for it, mm-hmm. but there's also, and this, this addresses what you were just suggesting, Richard, there's also this kind of good citizen, good neighbor mm-hmm. mentality that Water Street showed by, I mean, uh, uh, selling your toiletries, you mm-hmm. know, not toothpaste, obviously, but like yeah. toilet paper, and, and we're just providing it to the community when we couldn't get it ourselves in grocery stores. What inspired that particular um, opportunity for you and, and for Water Street, other than the fact that we were forced into this crazy time that was unprecedented? Where did that concept idea come from? Like, hey, you know what we're gonna do? We got all these supplies. Let's mm-hmm. see what people need. Well, I think we, we just we were that was a crazy time. Um, um, we were just talking every day. I mean, we, how how can we service the guests? Mm-hmm. And we knew that we weren't gonna just you know we had to unfortunately furlough a lot of our employees in the, in the hourly roles, and we just went down to our management team and what we kept saying. I kept telling my dad, we just like need purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the managers can't be just laid up. They, we need purpose, um, and I could tell you there was no business I mean, for the market. But we thought, like, well, what do people need? And, and we could be a market for um, our hourly employees that were just furloughed. They mm-hmm. they they come to us. They know us, and they can't get other things. And toilet paper, they could come get it from us. Right. Um, it didn't really wasn't that successful. Then we got panned. Our poor managers. They went through all that. We worked with our uh, vendors to get them mm-hmm. set up and. Um, I think we were selling water for like seven dollars a case or something like that, and they're like, "HEB does it for five. They're price gouging," <laughs> and we bought it for like six fifty. Right, case. exactly. You know, like we don't have HEB's purchasing power, but, so <laughs> no good deed goes unpunished. Well, but that's but also we, true. But we, uh, but it, that was great. We were just adapting at l- like right. lightning speed, and uh, we had just opened that new remodeled kitchen. We were yeah. just you know drained the coffers, ready for the season. <laughs> and then man, it got carpet pulled out. So I think there's an advantage there. You just kind of touched on it, the blowing and going, just making decisions and seeing what works. That is such an advantage to having entrepreneurs running a business, mm-hmm. right? And it probably drives the operation part of it crazy, right? Because right. y'all are coming with these nutty ideas and how does that work? And I don't have my list of 50 things we need to do. And I've never done this before. And, you know, but at the same time, in unprecedented times and really even in stable times, if a business you know, I don't want to borrow the cliche, but mm-hmm. it's basically it's innovate or die, right? Mm-hmm. And and yes, provide the customers what they're expecting, but you also kind of got to show something new. Right. And I think in those times, uh, several months ago, when Water Street was saying, "Hey, we don't really know what this all looks like for everybody, except that we're all in the same boat. We right. have a surplus of things. We have access to other supplies that that people might not have access to. Let's just see. Right. Let's just figure out if this is going to work, and whether it makes us money or not." We're providing a service that that for the people that need it, 
it's, it is an absolute necessity and we're going to make it happen. And I, I feel like that's one of those, um, one of the reasons that Water Street has shown as a star in downtown for so long. And secondary to that is the reputation that y'all have of, of hiring and retaining your employees. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm speaking to the man who runs a restaurant, but from my experience in restaurants, the turnover is insane, mm-hmm. even at the managerial level. And that sure. affects food quality and service quality and all the other things that go into it. But Water Street does have a reputation of sustaining its, its management and its staff and mm-hmm. the whole kind of crew all the way down to the kid who's growing up in the family bus and tables, you know, right. just keeping those folks around. So building this kind of corporate citizenship, both internally and in, in the way that people want to stay and work for you, and then externally and saying, hey, this is not going to make us any money. Mm-hmm. We're going to build a bakery downstairs because that's going to service us and our community. We're going to build a market in a time when nobody can get toilet paper and we're going to sell our Cisco, whatever the brand is, toilet paper, right? right. We're going to chunk it out there and y'all too can have your one-ply toilet paper and go for it. Or, you know, you can come down here and get what you need in a dire situation. We're going to make it available because we're blessed to have access. And I think that speaks to the character of the business and one of the reasons why it has been successful down here, even in times when there's no reason for it to have been successful. Right. Yeah, you know, I think that's... Um a good point and early in my career you know 2015 I come out of college I was I had all that I had it all figured out you uh, know, of just course. do that there we are right uh, uh, up price here by this and do this yeah. and eliminate this waste and it was so it was gonna be so simple give me some better quality and it's, and it's so yeah exactly <laughs> do this um, and it was all so simple and then you realize that it's really that it's first of all you're so right nothing's possible without the team mm-hmm. you know I'm so blessed to have long you know tenured employees um, that can adapt with us. They, right. they, you've got the institutional knowledge, and now you can move. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've now learned, and I'm, and now will probably forever be eighty percent of my times on org chart. Like what we talk about is, do we do we want them in the position? Are we promoting them for the right traits, or mm-hmm. are we going to put them in a position to fail? We just agonize over that. Uh, back then, it was all manager stuff. Right. I was eighty percent managerial, and just move this number here. And if we, you know, do this one tactic, they'll put up this new menu, mm-hmm. everything's like magic. And you just work the people. Once you have the people in the right spots, you know, are communicating and you trust each other, mm-hmm. that everything else is easy after that. Uh, and they have the culture. They know. Right. They hold it in them. So, um, yeah, I think that's great. And eventually, it, it, the same is true for our, our guests, you know, they, uh we want to and reserve the right to change when we need to, when we feel we need to, because we have to guess, and the guests have been so patient with us. Right. And they'll tell us. Oh, they'll yeah. tell us. <laughs> sometimes they'll tell us what exactly what we need to do, and sometimes they'll tell us something that is compl- they don't want us to do. Right. So it's kind of a mind reader thing, but if we have the people, like a nice stable bench of people and mm-hmm. a nice, uh, internally that understand that we need to have some innovation, we need to experiment, uh, and same with our guests, if we've done enough, a good enough job, building the bonds with them, mm-hmm. they'll give us the time and the latitude to bounce around a little right. bit. And every once in a while, so you might do the bakery doesn't make any money, but it's fine, but then you'll you'll eventually get hit. Right. You know, eventually exactly. you'll eventually you'll say, Man, Brad Lomax is a mine reader. Well, it'll it be perfect. like the, your wish of our experience when you had Water Street still up and you'd be like, wait a yeah. minute. Not only did we replace our business, we grew it. Right. And that should have never happened. Right. Yeah. So what do we need to do now? So I think as we kind of navigate what the guests want and we keep building our internal bench i just think we communicate and we we try new things and um we'll see what works but mm-hmm. um like you said innovate or die you know so um, what are you most excited about or are you and your family most excited about in corpus christi coming up in the future 
Um, well, the first thing my wife would kill me if she, I didn't say it. We got a baby boy coming. Hey, congratulations! Yeah, that's awesome. So it was my first one. It's, yes. it's unbelievable. Oh, how fun! Life comes at you fast. It's crazy. So it does. It so does. I've got a I've got a shucker succession plan. So, yes, so I like we're, that. We're good. Thing. Dish dish to shucker <laughs> something. So. Um, Yes. So super excited about that. It's going to be a whole new world. I'm, uh-huh. I'm trying to get as many fishing trips in as I can Good. before Good. before my Sundays and Saturdays are busy uh, with mm-hmm. restaurants and children. Uh, and uh, and then ultimately, I really want to see. I mean, I think we were getting there. I just I'm eager to see the downtown blossom. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was kind of momentum building, and we had gotten past the bad construction mm-hmm. hurdles. And now there's like new candy at the end, like the C district's gonna be right. expanded and the bridge is gonna be done and uh, the efforts of the downtown management district come mm-hmm. to fruition. And then we hit that pause here. So it's frustrating, but I, I'm just really, I think this next decade could be the roaring 20s, like they say in the, in, uh, the articles. And mm-hmm. I think we're poised pretty well, you know, uh, so I'm cautiously optimistic to just watch this downtown blossom. I think mm-hmm. we're unique. I wanna see the seafood culture develop i want to see sailing and the water sports and mm-hmm. I, I really can't wait to see the neighborhood over the next decade grow awesome. um, and i'll have a 10 year old by then that's right exactly yeah. <laughs> and that would hold it and maybe more yeah be a whole new world for sure yeah. well thank you so much for taking time to to visit with the Etcher corpus christi podcast we really appreciate yeah. it thank you so much i'm ready to do my scribbling you bet here we yeah. go second generation family business dynamics can be really tricky but from all appearances, the Lomaxes have it figured out. The second generation has taken up the mantle and even expanded the original business. In fact, Richard's brother Ben and Ben's wife Leslie are the duo behind Bus, the bar under the sun, in the old bus station downtown. Successful downtowns almost always have multi-generational businesses, and it's exciting to see one here in Corpus. You can follow the Water Street Market and its various businesses on Instagram at Water Street Market CC, at Water Street Oyster Bar, at Water Street Sushi Room, at Executive Surf Club, and at Texas Surf Museum. You can find Elizabeth's, which is now open for lunch in the Art Museum, at Elizabeth's underscore A-M-S-T. And you can follow Bus at bus.corpuschristi. Thank you, Richard, for coming on the show, and thank you, Todd, for the introduction. Thank you also to our infrastructure partners, Clint Tucker Homes and Sawyer Audiology. And thank you for taking time to listen. Listen.